Good morning, Soma. It's good to be with you, family. I am going to preach through Romans 8, 31 through 39 this morning. Will you please stand to read God's Word with me? What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can, be, who can ever be against us? Since He did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He also give us everything else? Who, da- who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for His own? No one. For God Himself has given us right standing with Himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us, And was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky, above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the Word of God given to the people of God. So that we can believe all the wonderful things that God has for us. Please be seated. Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome to help them learn how to be effective missionaries in their city. Soma, east side, is reading Romans so that we can be a room filled with missionaries to serve Jesus on the east side and in King County. We're not reading this, and I'm not speaking here to entertain you. Trust me, you don't want that. You could, you could pay much better money, pay actually less for a, a better entertainer. But my hope is that we are reading and studying God's Word so that you will take His Word seriously, that you will look at His Word as spiritual food for your soul, A person who reads God's Word is like what the prophet Jeremiah says. When he says, your words were found, and then I ate them. And they became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. When you become a Christian, God illuminates your eyes. The book that was once a history book, the all-time bestseller in human history, become spiritual food for your souls. You cannot live without it. And so my hope is that what if you get anything out of me today, is that I will persuade you and convince you to open up the Word of God when you leave. And that you read it every single day. That you feast on it. That it is truly sweeter than honey to your mouth. Amen? In chapter 1, we learned about all these wonderful things in Scripture. And so, in, in the first verse of Romans chapter, uh, or in verse 31 of chapter 8, Paul says we have wonderful things. And that everything he's written so far in Scripture has been wonderful things. And so he is writing now in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, responding to 
What do we say about all these wonderful things? And so, when we read Romans, you have to read it with the lens of these are wonderful things for God's people. In chapter 1, we learn that one of the wonderful things Christians receive is that Jesus is the cure for the problem of evil in our world. The good news of Jesus is the power to bring healing to our hearts and the world. The gospel. When we say the good news of Jesus, we are talking about the gospel. The word gospel means good news. And the gospel is the antidote for making all things new in our broken world. The wonderful thing in chapter 2 is that a true believer in Jesus Christ is not determined by their outward appearance or their personality. It's not determined if they know the Christian dance well, if they say the right things. But it is determined by the supernatural transformation that happens from the inside. And it was God's kindness that led you to repentance or or experiencing the, the heart transplant of receiving a new heart from heaven that replaces the hearty stone that we once had that never wanted to know God in the first place. This is part of the Christian package. When you, when you become a follower of Jesus and you turn to Him, And you give up your old life. He replaces your heart of stone. That is all about the self. And about the pleasures of this world with a heart of flesh. A heart that now longs to know your maker. It is a pure work of God. Knowing God is a pure work of God. No human effort stands a chance to have, to be able to even want to know him. We learned that in Romans chapter 2 and 3 and 4 that men and women only seek after everything else but God. It was not His wrath or His anger toward you, but out of His kindness and great affection for you that rescued you from your sin. The wonderful things in chapters 3 and 4 is that even though, even though the world is doomed because of sin, God seeks you out. And He forgives you of your sin. It is, again, a pure work of God. And you did nothing, and you can do anything to earn His favor. And when you can truly forgive someone for hurting you, that is a true supernatural work of God. True forgiveness in the Scriptures, not cultural forgiveness. True forgiveness in the Scriptures is that you will remember their sins no more. And you would be dedicated to make sure your friendship will be better than it ever was before. Or maybe it might even mean that you have to start a friendship with someone who was once your enemy. And that is the reality of the Christian experience. Jesus and humanity were enemies. In fact, humanity murdered Jesus. And so when we turn to Him, He makes us His friend. He welcomes us into His family. And we experience a new kind of intimacy with God that we have never experienced before. And so how does that apply to our life today? That true forgiveness is not a, is not transactional. It's not therapeutic to help you better yourself. True forgiveness is costly. It is you absorbing the cost of the pain that was endured upon you. Like Jesus endured and absorbed the cost of the pain that sinful humanity had had put upon Him. And He gives us a new heart and we now enjoy a new kind of friendship and intimacy with Him. Do you have people in your life that you have not truly forgiven? If you haven't, then you have to ask yourself if you truly know what it means to be forgiven by God for hurting Him and breaking His commandments. The wonderful thing in chapter 5 is that this salvation that has given you eternal, present, and impenetrable hope enables you to endure during difficult times. 
the wonderful thing in chapter 6 is that you are no longer in bondage to sin. Because Jesus has set you free. So you can now walk in the newness of life. We learn in chapter 6 that there are only two kinds of humans on our planet. Those who are slaves to God and those who are slaves to sin. And because of Jesus, we have been generously given a path to freedom by becoming a slave to God. The wonderful thing in chapter 7 is that trying to obey God's commandments in the Bible cannot help you earn His favor. But instead, God's law points you to the good works of Jesus who lived a perfect life. And that perfect life that He lived is injected into the believer. So when God sees the sinner who believes in Jesus, He only sees the perfect life that Jesus lived to accept us into His family. A sinner has no ability to save him or herself apart from Jesus. And the wonderful thing in chapter 8 is that the believer is no longer under any judgment because Jesus was judged in your place and executed in your place. Martin Luther, the great Christian reformer from the 16th century, he calls it the great exchange where Jesus, where God enters human history, exchanges himself with you, takes your seat to absorb the punishment for our sins so that we can be truly forgiven, so that we can have eternal security, and so that we can love and know God, our Father in heaven, personally. Do you know him personally? Do you know your Father in heaven? So in light of all of these wonderful things, Paul is now equipping his readers in Rome to see that not even pain has any chance to stand up to the wonderful things Christians have in Jesus. In fact, pain is actually a gift to help the believer grow and be more anchored in their faith in Jesus. Pain is a detector for who is truly a believer and who is a pretender. In the Christian life, pain is actually an opportunity, not an inconvenience. That is what we're going to talk about today. Pain. What a fun topic. The first time I can recall experiencing pain was when I was about eight or nine years old. I remember feeling abandoned by my cousins. And in the Indian culture, your first cousins are like your siblings. And I had about 20 of them. My dad was one of eight. And so my cousins, every year, they would go to Six Flags. Anybody know who Six, what Six Flags is? I don't know if there's one here in Seattle. Is there one in Seattle? No? Okay. Just, just wanted to make sure. But every year we would go to, they would go to Six Flags. And my sister and I would never get the invitation. I remember feeling alone. I felt pain. I felt abandoned and insecure. Does anyone want me? I'm eight or nine years old. I feel unwanted. Or another deeply painful moment in my life was when I had my first child, Lydia. And a few months after I went back to work from paternity leave, my company decided to lay off my entire team. And this was the company that I thought I was going to retire in. 27 years old, one-year-old child, a mortgage. I was feeling insecure and in pain about my present and my future. Are you feeling pain today? What is causing the pain? Suffering is at the heart of the Christian reality. And true Christian greatness is only achieved through suffering. That's the Bible's definition of being Christian. Anyone who has given their whole lives 
over to, over to Jesus will experience pain. But all of you experience pain, don't you? Christian or non-Christian? All of you experience pain, but walking with God through your pain will make you into a more complete human being and achieve greatness. One biblical scholar calls this Roman passage the passage of Christian greatness. How would you define Christian greatness? Would you define Christian greatness as Christians who are the most successful in their careers? Or would you define Christian greatness as Christians who have led the most people to a relationship with Jesus? Or would you define Christian greatness as Christians who have families where all of their kids and their spouses and their grandkids and their great-grandkids love Jesus? My voice cracked again. Two sermons in a row. Here's what Paul says about Christian greatness. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death. I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. In other words, Christian greatness is Jesus intimately and experience for yourself and others to encounter the saving power and presence of Jesus. Second, you will suffer with Jesus. Notice Paul does not say he wants to suffer for Jesus. Instead, he wants to suffer with Jesus. When Christians experience pain, they will never be alone when they are in pain. Third, Christian greatness is achieved by finishing the race at the end of your life on earth. You are following Jesus till the very end of your life. So what does Christian greatness look like for you? Jesus entered human history as a missionary who experienced extraordinary pain to save sinful humans and transform them into a royal team of followers who are inseparable from him. So this text in Romans is a lesson on pain. And the lesson learned is that all people experience pain. But most people experience pain alone. But Christians are never alone in their pain. If you believe in Jesus today, you are not alone in your pain. Your Father in heaven knows you by name. And He pulled you out of darkness so that you never have to be alone in your suffering. Following Jesus is to recognize and live under the framework that your Father in heaven knows you by name and planned for your salvation before you were even born. And no amount of emotional pain, physical pain, spiritual pain can separate you from Jesus. Paul is going to teach us that God loves you and nothing in this world, nothing at all, can separate you from Jesus. And this idea is really just Paul sharing the implications of all that he has written so far in chapter 8. Paul's tone in this passage is with great excitement. He is hype because he reflects on the first eight chapters of this letter and he calls all the benefits of being a Christian wonderful things. He discusses how Christians are to respond to these wonderful things. And he begins by asking a question. What shall we say about such wonderful things such as these? One of these wonderful statements is the statement that Paul started the chapter with. He said that the sinner is no longer condemned 
or judged for his sins because his life is hidden in Jesus Christ who became condemned on the cross in his place, also known as the great exchange. And Paul finishes the chapter by saying that the sinner who is hidden in Jesus cannot be separated from Jesus. The sinner is forever sealed in Jesus. So he starts the chapter with no condemnation for the Christian. You will never be under judgment ever again because you live in the shadow of Jesus. And he ends with no separation for the Christian. Can you say it with me? No condemnation. No separation. You are forever inseparable from Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you are no longer condemned for your sins. And you are inseparable from Him. This is good news. This is amazing news. This is truly the best news you will ever hear. That the Father in heaven declares you no longer condemned and you can never be separated from me. We should be eternally grateful that we are free from judgment and forever inseparable from Jesus. Also notice that Paul is talking about these wonderful things Not as an, I have this wonderful thing, and you have this wonderful thing, to single out a particular individual. But instead, he uses we three times in these nine verses. He uses us 16 times in these nine verses. He uses our four times in these nine verses. These wonderful things belong to the community of believers And we are to soak ourselves in these truths. If we are no longer condemned by God, and if we are inseparable from Jesus, then Christians should should rightly no longer condemn each other. And they should be inseparable from each other. Family, We are to remind ourselves of these wonderful things and exhibit these wonderful things in practice. Do you have something against a brother or sister in your life right now or even in this room? You would be sinning. You would be going against the very passage we just read to hold on to condemnation over them even though it might feel good to have a one-upper on them. I feel this way toward you. And you would be sinning to hold on to separation from them. You would be lacking in understanding the wonderful things God has given you that cost Him everything, including His own life as an exchange for our sins. This is a family inheritance we all equally receive and enjoy together. So we will see today that Paul is calling us to respond to God's wonderful things by choosing to be secure in Jesus and relying on Jesus' sufferings to overcome our own suffering. Be secure in Jesus. Have you mapped out your entire life already for security? I have gotten better at planning over the years. But naturally, I am an impulsive individual. My style has always been to pull the trigger first and then say sorry later. Which at times has cost me. So Amazon and eBay are made for people like me. I love that I can control clicking and purchasing a book or even a pair of Jordans if I really wanted to instantly. Lindsay might not appreciate that quality about me, which is the reason why we even have a super strict budget and I have a monthly allowance. But humans strive to have security, to have control over their lives. 
And this is what I call the great illusion. Do you really believe that you can have true control over your life and your destiny? What does it mean to be secure in God, according to Paul? That whoever is a follower of Jesus has God completely on his side. And God wants to see him flourish in every way, forever. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? And his call to action for you and I is quite simple. Pursue Christian greatness. Jesus says in one of the gospel, of, gospel accounts that if anybody wants to follow me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, then he must suffer with me. If you cling to your life for security, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, to be secure in me, you will find it. What is Jesus saying here? If you give up control over your life for Jesus, maker of heaven and earth, the sovereign God over all of the cosmos, it will cost you everything. But you will gain everything. You will have Jesus You will have His family. And you will have the kind of security that money or human efforts cannot buy. And that is spending eternity with God who is completely for you and will always be with you. And that, Jesus says again, what will it profit a man If he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul, is it really worth it to live under the illusion that you are in control of your life and your destiny? Who here is a serial planner? (laughs) How many of your plans revolve around God's kingdom. What does the Bible say about our drive for planning? Proverbs 16.9 says, We can make our plans, but the Lord determines His steps. Proverbs 19.21 says, You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Jesus says to seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and He will give you everything you need. And so we have learned up to this point in the letter of Romans that no matter how much you plan for obtaining personal pleasure and comfort or control, and no matter how much you try to control your destiny, you will not find the answers you have been searching for. Or what your heart has been longing for. There is no salvation in your intellect. There is no salvation in your bank account. There is no salvation in your career. There is no salvation in moving to a conservative state. There might be salvation to moving to Philadelphia, the greatest city on earth, which is where I'm from. Your best laid plans are not enough. But God's plan is enough. True salvation is this. That out of Jesus' love for you, He would enter human history. He would decide to live a sinless life. He would be raised from the dead to life again, having died a criminal's death. 
so that anyone who believes in him could live free of judgment and condemnation. And therefore, you have a new purpose, a new identity, where you become a missionary for God. And His Spirit lives inside of you. And everywhere you go, you inhabit His saving power and presence to be a blessing to our people, to to the community, and for people to experience and encounter the same love of Jesus that first rescued you. Because if God does not condemn you, nothing can be against you. And if nothing can be against you, what is your goal in life? Are you feeling burdened today by trying to control your life? Are you chasing for personal security? If you will believe this truth that God is for you and nothing can be against you, then your life will begin to look radically different. You will spend a lifetime seeking Jesus together and inhabiting your community with the saving power and presence. Family, Jesus today, what makes Paul so certain that nothing can be against us? Well, he answers it by asking his second question in verse 32. Since God did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He give up everything else? God the Father planned our salvation by sending His Son Jesus to purchase our salvation by drinking God's judgment through His death. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the most influential human being in the history of the world. No one has even come close to human, to be the most important person in human history to ever live. No one has even come close to impact the world as Jesus did. He is the most powerful being in all of reality. And even Jesus was not spared from death. He was not spared because God is completely for you. And He was not spared because God abundantly and freely gives to you everything you need to love Him, including His own Son. God has shown us everything we need to live our lives out of the knowledge that we are deeply loved by Him. So deeply that not even the Son of God was spared from death. Do you understand this? Are you beginning to comprehend the depth of God's love for you? God is completely for you. His plans for you are good. And if you believe this, you have access to everything you need to know God and to be known by God. And because God is for you, No one can make any accusation against you that holds any water. The most important decision you can make in life is whether you want to be in right standing with God. And if you are in right standing with God, no one can condemn you. No accusations against you will ultimately succeed. They can try, but they will fail. According to Paul, there are three Four us's in verse 34 that prevents us from ever being condemned by anyone. He says, nobody can condemn us because Jesus died for us. Jesus was raised to life for us. And Jesus is sitting in the place of honor pleading for us. Guilty sinners to be acquitted. How differently would your life and your words look under this framework. Place your confidence in Jesus' performance instead of your own. Plan your life boldly with a kingdom-minded vision. 
How can we make plans for our lives as followers of this Jesus who did all this for us? And yet, sometimes we want nothing to do with Him. God, does this plan I have have anything to do with your kingdom? Am I making this decision with the mindset of a missionary or a consumer who craves for comfort and security? Why should you trust in your own flawed ability or intellect when the creator of the universe committed a selfless act that was intended to set you free from trusting in yourself? He died for you, was raised to life for you, and is pleading for your vindication before God. I'm reminded of the old hymn written in 1863 by Charity, the Irish poet Charity Smith, when she says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest, whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Will you choose to be secure in Jesus? The second point Paul makes is to rely on the suffering of Jesus to overcome your own suffering. Many of you have experienced extraordinary suffering These last several years. Some of you have experienced death. You have, some of you have experienced near death experiences from your loved ones. Some of you have complicated and painful relationships within your own family and friends. And some of you have even been persecuted because people found out that you are a follower of Jesus. Does experiencing pain in this life mean that God loves you less or that He doesn't love you anymore? Has God seemed to have been silent in your pain? Pain is not optional for anyone in this life, Christian or non-Christian. One pastor states that pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. We don't have to waste our pain. And it's not strange for you to experience pain and ask, God, why is this happening to me? Even Jesus' first cousin, John, whom Jesus called the greatest prophet to ever live, he was disillusioned by his own pain. Being in prison, he questioned whether Jesus was really the guy. Are you really the Savior of the world? Matthew's account of Jesus' life says this, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Even John the Baptist, who was the first to recognize who Jesus was, doubted because of his pain. Pain is like a tutor that reminds us of our humanity and our finitude. You may not have known this, but you are a finite being. And so Paul is asking the question, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Or the better translation is, can anything separate us from Christ's love for His believers? And the answer is a resounding no. Because all suffering, all suffering that a follower of Jesus has to endure was buried with Jesus' death on the cross. You see, suffering is a byproduct of sin. 
We suffer by experiencing the effects of sin. When Jesus died, his death had cosmic implications. Where not only are human souls being born again, but also human suffering will one day be made right. Jesus absorbed your sins on the cross. Past, present, and future. But he also absorbed the effects of sin that results in you and I experiencing pain on a daily basis. And so when Jesus died, he died the death of many souls who call him God and the many souls who will call him God. But he also died to redeem the cosmos where one day the whole world will be made new and suffering will cease to exist. This is the Christian hope we anchor our lives in. That is, we were made for another world. We were made for a better world. This world is not our final destination. And so we do not have to fear any longer when we are experiencing pain. Whether great pain or small pain, our pain should remind us of Jesus. We can rely on Jesus' suffering instead of wallowing in our own suffering to overcome our painful circumstances. The psalmist says this in Psalm 118.6, The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What could mere people do to me? How do you make sense of your suffering without Jesus? What do you do when you are in pain? When you feel pain, do you look for ways to avoid it or numb it? Do you, when you feel pain, do you treat it with sin instead of running to the sufferings of Jesus? When you feel pain, what do you do? Do you turn to gossip? I don't like that person. They hurt me, so I'm going to put them down. I'm going to paint him in a negative light to others. Do you put people down so you could, be, so you could feel better about yourself as a way of numbing your pain? When you feel pain, do you turn to porn to watch a man or woman get raped on your screen? Because that is what porn is, if you didn't know. Do you turn to alcohol or drugs to numb your pain? Family, I plead with you to turn to the sufferings of Jesus when you are in pain. He sees your pain, He actually endured your pain. On a bloody cross. Paul is running through a list of physical pains here in verse 35. Trouble, calamity, persecution, hunger, being in danger, and threatened with death. Can anything separate us from Christ's love for his believers? Paul says no. Because we have overwhelming victory in Jesus. Paul then uses the past tense in verse 37. Who loved us. Do you see what Paul is saying here? You are inseparable from Jesus because of how he loved us. So Paul wrote this approximately 60 years after Jesus' death. And he is pointing back to the moment in human history that was the basis for why the world was turned upside down because of Christianity. And that is Jesus' love for suffering humanity was demonstrated by suffering for humanity. Jesus' love for suffering humanity was demonstrated by suffering for humanity. It is not your fickle love for Jesus that will help you overcome your suffering. It is Jesus' impenetrable 
permanent, unchanging love for you that will help you overcome your suffering. That is what Robert Robinson, the, the, the songwriter who wrote, when he wrote, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing in 1758, he says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The 16th century Christian reformer Martin Luther writes about this when he says, It is Christ's love that makes us triumphant through our love to Him. We did not love Him first, but He first loved us, and He still loves us first. It is not because we love that He loves, but He loves, therefore we love. Will you follow Jesus? Will you choose to be secure in Jesus? Will you rely on Jesus' sufferings to overcome your own suffering? How should we respond to this? First, I want you, I want to invite you to recognize the cost of what God did for you. And then give your life to Jesus. The night before Jesus was put on death row that led to his murder, Jesus prayed to God, begging him, Father, is there any other way for your salvation to be executed than my death on a cross? Is there any other possible way? Luke says that he was in excruciating pain emotionally where he was sweating profusely because Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man, understood and already was experiencing the weight of absorbing God's punishment over sinful humanity. Luke says that his sweat was turning into drops of blood because of the depths of his agony over what he had to do the very next day. Jesus experienced great emotional agony that night. He had asked his disciples to pray with him. Will you be present with me? I'm about to die tomorrow. Will you be present with me? They fall asleep on him. He was alone in his suffering. Are you suffering alone right now? Jesus was alone in the garden that night. And he was alone on the cross so that you will never be alone in your suffering. You are now inseparable from him because of that moment in history. One of the greatest benefits of following Jesus is you will never have to suffer alone ever again. And there is no amount of pain in your life that can separate you from Jesus. What is your pain? Will you surrender it to Jesus right now? Second, I want to invite you to recognize your humanity and rely on the suffering of Jesus together as God's people. You're only human. You were made for relationships. You were made to be dependent And not independent. It is a sign of strength. When you show your neediness before your brothers and sisters. Paul says, I am glad to show my weaknesses. Because in my weakness, Christ's strength is made perfect. It is actually a sign of weakness to act like you don't need anyone. It is actually a sign of weakness to project strength that you don't have. You have limitations, but you belong to a limitless God. And this limitless God says to the sinner who places their hope in Jesus Christ that you are no longer condemned and you will never be separated from me. Recognize 
your humanity and your finitude. We are not invincible. We have an end date. The theologian Kelly Capek wrote in his recent amazing book called You're Only Human, says, if you ever need a reminder of your humanity and a healthy dose of humility, just touch your belly button. Let's do that right now. No, I'm kidding. You don't have to do that. <laughs> Please don't do that. You were brought into the world by another human being. Will you rely on the suffering of Jesus together as his people? Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, thank you for your great plan of salvation that is offered to the world that for anyone who believes in your Son, we can have a supernatural encounter with you and know and spend the rest of our lives knowing you, being loved by you. Lord, thank you for being with us in our pain. Thank you that nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. Thank you that we have no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. Help us to live like that is true. Help us to live like we truly are free. That we are not under judgment, but we are under love, the affection of our Father. Father, would you encourage your people this morning? May they cry out to you. May they see their neediness for you and cling to you as their God. In Jesus' name, amen. In a moment, we're about to participate in communion. And this is an ancient tradition in the early church where we have bread and we have wine. And if you don't know Jesus today, this is a feast that Jesus had instituted for his people so that they can often remember what he did for us. That he, his body was fractured on a cross for our sins, absorbing our sin, absorbing the judgment of God. And so we eat bread, symbolizing his body, and we drink wine or juice, remembering that his blood was shed for our sins. His blood was poured out so that our blood would not be poured out. So that we can remember this morning that we are not under condemnation and that we are inseparable from Jesus. And we also have boxes here to give an offering to if the Lord leads you to carry out that form of biblical obedience. Love you all.